Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Barry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. We are live for the future belongs to creators. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Barrett. This is Nathan. It is casual Q&A Friday. Uh, you know, if you listen, there's no, like, it's not any more casual than any other day. But if you watch, mm. you might get why we call it that. So anyways, you should join us live sometime. It's always on YouTube at noon Pacific uh, every weekday. But uh, today, um, Q&A, we've got a number of questions ahead of time, actually. I am proud of this audience. We are like getting out in front of things. I love it. But as always, listener live listener questions bump straight to the front of the line. So if you're listening live, um, we'll answer you uh, right at the top. So feel free to drop your questions in the chat. But before we get into it, Nathan, how are you doing? I am green. I am as green as can be because... That creator session that just finished airing with Drew Holcomb was so good. Like just ridiculously good. And uh, not only his music, how he is as a creator, uh, the way he brought his wife in and they they closed it out with two songs together and the stories that they told. But just like this, like being in their house, it not feeling like this highly produced thing, right? There wasn't six cameras. There wasn't all this stuff. It was just the right amount to like get to him and his art and it's so good. <laughs> if you're lacking context today, uh, we talked about it a little bit yesterday, but uh, today we aired, I think it was the fourth in our series of creator sessions. Um, this is our adaptation since we can't do in-person events. Our, uh, our teammate Haley Janicek had this idea for how to pivot her time and her work to online events basically. And um, today we did our first creator session with a musician. His name is Drew Holcomb. His wife is Ellie Holcomb. And they are musicians uh, based out of Nashville. And they did kind of like a live concert slash interview. Mm -hmm. Um, Our team put together a list of questions about how they make a living um, at their craft as musicians and just kind of where their art comes from. Man, I posted, I posted in Slack. I was about 20 minutes in before I had to hop off on, onto another meeting and I'm going to tune back in later. Uh, I just said, golly, I'm like a lot of feelings. It was deep. Music is deep for me. I don't know if that's true for everyone, but for me, music is deep and and I loved it. So I'm green too. Um, that's the context for, for what we're coming in on. Beautiful day in Portland today. I went out and grabbed to go coffee to support a couple of my buddies who own a coffee shop. My wife said that was her her Mother's Day present was <laughs> getting her a, a coffee from a real coffee shop today. Nice. Um, so things are good. Yeah. Um, it's nice to have kind of a, a little bit more of a chill day today after a, a long week of intense meetings. Yeah. Just noticing it looks like Emily and Teddy were both uh, joining us live on, on for the creative session with Drew. And we're just excited to see where that takes us. This is kind of this crazy idea that Haley and our team has been putting together and each week it's been changing and iterating and getting bigger. And I, I mean, you're talking about the, the feelings that it had. I was like standing in my kitchen because first I have my laptop uh, in the kitchen because it's lunchtime, you know, and let's do it. Let's do a lunchtime concert. So I'm making lunch and I was, I was giddy. I think because it's, there's this element of the creators we serve that 
you know, we've been getting more musicians, we've been getting actors, we've been getting um, all these other people, but like a lot of our core base is still in the blogger, podcaster, that kind of market. And, and it was realizing like, oh, this is going, like it's happening. We've talked for so long about expanding it to include musicians and chefs and filmmakers and everybody else. And, and we've seen them coming in, but it was just this thing that we've always talked about, like actually happening right there in my kitchen. And I was like, oh, this is so good. And then once I finished making my food, I went and turned it on on the TV and Hillary and I and the boys all sat around and watched it. And, and uh, Josiah, even at four months old, was just, you know, granted, I think you put any baby in front of a television there thrilled but he just like stared at it the whole time you know and thought it was great um this gets at at something that's in one of the questions we got asked actually and maybe we'll start there look at you with the segue i know right <laughs> um but but creator sessions is kind of this realization of a vision we've had for a long time to combine things like if you've ever heard of npr's tiny desk concert series that they do that's basically what we just experienced and almost like nike sponsored athletes or patagonia sponsored mountain climbers or something like that where there's this much broader creator community that we serve that we want to show off. You know, we want to give them the stage and give them the microphone and let them share their message. And that means nothing about serving podcasters and YouTubers and bloggers any less than we always have. Yep. It actually just means we're making the pie bigger for everyone. Um, and that's really exciting to me. And so one of the questions we got from Ryan Demetz on Twitter was, um, when you serve a very large range of customers, like we do, how do you decide what features to build first? As an example, the large accounts in terms of revenue and list size are likely to be using the platform extensively and putting it through its paces and will have totally different needs and expectations versus a customer who is just starting their journey with email marketing. I think the fear one always has is how, to do, how do you keep both sides of the spectrum satisfied? Um, so I thought this is really good. It really gets at the heart of uh, having a, a wide and growing breadth of a customer base like we do as a company. Mm -hmm. And as a creator, there's there's also an inflection point where you can go from this small, small, early focused niche audience to a much larger audience. And so what do you do as you hit that inflection point is kind of Ryan's question. How do you keep yeah. serving everyone? That's good. So one first thing that we did that I think has really helped us is that we go after a narrow audience and uh, shout out to Nicole here in the chat. Um, love you, Nicole. Can't wait till we can see you again. Nicole is Barrett's wife in case <laughs> anyone did not pick up on that. If there's uh, extra trolling. We know why. <laughs> um, so many businesses, right? You're trying to go after a bigger and bigger market and you want to make sure you can get enough customers. And one thing that's been really helpful is that we narrowed down the market that we're going after and so we're saying, you know, first bloggers and then creators, which, you know, so we're not going after all of small business. And so that helps because even within a narrow market, to Ryan's question, you have this huge range of experience levels and, and even types of businesses. Um, you know, there's an interesting perspective. There was a company run by some friends of ours, also in the SaaS space, also serving creators. And uh, people were talking about it on Twitter and they're like, ah, but I feel like they're just building whatever they want and not what customers want. And I was reading that and being on the receiving end of feedback like that, sometimes I was thinking, I bet what's happening is they're building stuff for other customers, <laughs> what other customers want. Because companies don't really build things of like, I want this. Customers don't, but I want it. And so we're going to build it anyway. It's usually this group versus that group. So I think about it a couple ways. One, well, what we do at Convert is we've divided up um, our engineers between areas of the app so that we're making continual progress all throughout it. So like people may have seen us come out with a lot of landing page templates recently. That's something that's amazing for beginner creators 
and quite useful for intermediate and, and advanced creators. You know, we even use it, even though we have a full design team in house, but you might see like 10 new landing page templates and come out and be like, oh, but what about this thing in automations? Why didn't you fix that? You did 10, 10 to one. That's not fair. And you're like, well, landing page templates are easier. But one thing that we've done is put engineers on each area so that we're continually making progress in each area. And we can kind of run a few different backlogs. And so some of our teams, like our automations team is really working on features that, um, are going to be for that more advanced customer, right? Automations aren't even in our free plan. And so we're able to keep making that progress. So if you don't have that big of a team, obviously that's quite a privilege that we have there to be able to do that. Um, but what you can do is you can alternate. You can go back and forth and you can say, let me build one over here and one over there. Or you can try to find, you know, list out both of those backlogs of, of ideas for a product that you want to build, list them out, and then find the places where there's overlap. Where is something going to benefit both groups of people? And in that case, let's put that up near the top. I love that. Um, my framework here is is based on two things. Did I cut you off? I'm sorry. Were you about to no. keep going? Okay. No, right. I finished. <laughs> I was ready um, for some Barrett Brooks wisdom right love there. Love it. The two, the two ways I would look at this are... In, in terms of identity and in terms of job to be done or product need. Mm-hmm. So everyone thinks they're a special snowflake. That is not necessarily a bad thing. Everyone in your audience is going to think they're unique and different and need something that's different from everyone else. So for us, a musician as a creator thinks about themselves much differently from a YouTuber. And it's really important to acknowledge that, to, to know in our heads that the identity of the person we're talking to affects how they look at our company, how they make a buying decision, what they need in the tool. And so I look at that as a marketing problem. Mm-hmm. Appealing to people's identities is a marketing problem. You might not have to change anything about your product, but if you can specifically speak to the different identities in your audience in your marketing, then that makes them feel like what you've made is just for them. So I look at tools like Right Message. I look at things like content snippets or um, personalizing content in your emails as really great opportunities to slightly tweak the messaging to appeal to a specific kind of identity in your audience without changing anything else about your core sales funnel, if we want to use that businessy language or anything in your product. So that's the first thing. I think you appeal to identities through marketing. The second thing is many identities in your audience have the same needs for your products or services. And so there's a difference between appealing to different identities versus building a bunch of different products. We don't need to build an email marketing tool that's different for musicians than we do for podcasters or for YouTubers or for chefs. A lot of them actually have the same needs. And so this is where looking for a commonality in the creator journey, what is it that most creators go through as they're growing their business from nothing into something that can sustain itself over time? And that's actually normally what affects the job to be done of our software. Um, Jobs to be done is a framework that you can think about in terms of product management and positioning. You can look that up on your own time. Um, I would look at the overlap, like you said, Nathan, between identities in terms of what you can build. And when you're a one person show in your creator business, I would just rotate between which of those, um, which of those needs I'm serving at a given time. So for example, on a content calendar, I might evenly divide, well, number one, I'd ask my audience, which needs of these do you have? So I know where my audience is weighted. Mm -hmm. Um, You can do that in an email survey or in your form on your website where you you gather subscribers. 
And then I would focus more of my time in the area where I have more audience, but I would rotate. So let's say you have 50% of your audience that are like medium people, whatever that means, medium advanced people. Then you have 25% beginner and 25% super advanced heavy users. Um, I'd spend my time that way. Every two out of every four posts would be for that middle group. One out of every four would be for beginners and one out of every four would be for the advanced. And that's just one way to think about it. But basically market to identities, split your time based on the division of your audience, as you know, to be true. Yeah. I love that. The very last thing that I would say is just look at that thing or that new thing that you're coming out with, whether it's a course or feature or anything like that. And just look at that last little bit of messaging that's on top of it. Are people saying, oh, this is just for beginners because your testimonial is from a beginner or it's just for advanced people because your case study is the most advanced use case. So think about it. If I put this out and it serves a broader group, could I do a case study at each end of the spectrum? And then people feel like it's just for them. Yep. Love it. I'm going to go ahead and call it now. Today's going to be a little bit of a longer episode because we've got a lot of great questions. So just, uh, if you need to jump off early that you'll, you can always get the recording later. Um, Noah is live today and had already asked a question earlier in the week. So Ooh, I want to, want to honor like that. Double. That's right. You get in early and show up live. So this was on our picking a business model episode that he asked this question. We weren't able to get to it then, but he said, any advice for picking a product or service that fits with your content? Also, do you recommend prices that end in 99 cents? Yeah. So maybe let's take them in reverse order. I feel like the 99 cents, you know, that is easier for some reason. And we get into pricing psychology and we should probably all go read more Dan Ariely and all of his stuff on, on that and choice and everything. I just don't really care. I want prices that look nice for I've settled on. I like that when they end in nine, because apparently that's what we all do, but I don't like, I've never do 29 99, but like 29 for whatever reason feels right. So what I'm trying to say is I have no educated opinion on this and I go with what feels good to me. So uh, okay, my slightly educated opinion on this is that, um, when you round up to a 10 or a hundred or a thousand, it's a different buying decision in the person's mind. So the reason you see a lot of prices that end in nine is that $29 is a different decision in someone's mind than 30, even though it's not same thing when it's like, uh, if you see on gas stations, they'll list one forty nine, and then sometimes you'll see and nine tenths next yeah, to it, which is wild. Right. So they're literally charging you a 10th of a cent less per gallon, but they can list it for a cent less. And that changes our minds because we're irrational. Um, Dan Ariely's book is called predictably irrational. It's all about this exact thing. There's a resource of the day for you. If you really want to dig in on pricing, if you just want to trust us, yes, things that end in nine are better than round numbers. I don't know why it's kind of annoying. People are irrational. Yeah. And I think the case would be how far you're going to take it. The reason the gas stations are going to the nine tenths is because at the volume of transactions and the volume of product that they're selling, that makes a difference. Whereas for us going to 99 cents, actually in our volume, if we went from $29, that would be interesting math. If we went from $29 to $29.99, at our volume, that would now make a difference. Well, that I can do the math on that. That would be an extra $30,000 a month. So right, you start to see how that's useful. But us then going to the 9 tenths, we're not at the volume where that would make any kind of sense. Whereas the gas station, you know, Shell Oil is at that volume where someone went, look, consumers won't see a difference and we can make that happen. Um, taking the other part of the question, uh, which, oh, there you go. Barrett's moving things around in our dock. It's throwing me off. Uh, picking a product or service that fits with your content. You know, I'm going to keep my answer simple for this one, Barrett, and I'll let you weigh in more. 
I would, I would talk to the people in your audience. I would just say, Hey, what do you need? What are you struggling with? What's your biggest frustration related to this thing? And as they're talking, well, first truly listen and take notes. But then as you're reviewing those notes, say, okay, how could I help? What could I provide that would help make that, that easier? That could shortcut the process. Maybe it takes a long time to learn this thing. Maybe they don't want to learn the thing at all. And they're just in it for the outcome. Then can I provide that outcome or can I shortcut this learning? And then that's going to start to get you thinking about, okay, what fits more naturally here, a course or coaching or a physical product or, or whatever else. Yep. People always know their pain points or often know their pain points. They often know their goals and their hopes. They rarely know exactly how to solve for their pain points or how to get to their hopes and goals. So your job is to figure out when they tell you, here's what I'm struggling with, or here's what I'm hoping for your product or your service is often its job is to solve for that, solve the pain, get them to their hope or dream in the future. Um, and if you do one of those things, usually you're going to be in good shape. Yeah. What's interesting is when you're, it's a little more abstract, right? When it's art, music, entertainment, these things are a little less clear at times. And so a lot of what you're trying to do in that case is really just appeal to truth. I think, uh, truth in emotion, basically, I think the best art appeals mm -hmm. to people's emotions. And so like, if you heard us talk about the music that Drew and Ellie Holcomb just shared with us just before this, it was an emotional experience, positive, negative, but people you know, when they're self-aware and when they're in a healthy place, want to experience emotion. And so on the entertainment side of the creator business, I think you're really trying to appeal to emotion. Your, your art on the wall should make someone feel something. Your music should make someone feel something. And that's where being an, a creative artist is a little bit different from being more like a creative educator. Because an artist, you really got to be guided by intuition and trying to find your own truth and communicating that to others, to others and helping it resonate. As a creative educator, it's a little more clear cut, you know, solving for a pain of how do I find a job is quite different from writing a song that resonates deeply with people. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, all right. Sean has a question dropped in live. Uh, when personally welcoming a new subscriber to my newsletter, is it better for me to write a personalized welcome email to them or send a personalized welcome video instead? Um, first little thing on this, Chris Gillibo, who we've referenced many times because uh, we've both been so inspired and learned so much from him early in our careers online. He wrote a personal welcome email to every person who joined his list up to 10,000 subscribers. Once he got to 10,000 subscribers, he, he had to call it. You know, he's like, okay, <laughs> I, I got to go more scalable here. So I think that's something that many people don't even consider, right? They're like, oh, got five new subscribers. The automated emails went out. That's good to go. But Chris took the, took the perspective of, I'm building a community, right? I want to know these people. They should know me. I should know them. And so he said, like, he sent them an email. Hey, it's Chris. Super excited that you joined the list. Um, I joined after 10,000. So I never got the, never got the email, but I imagine that he put in some personalized stuff. of like looked up their site, looked up other things. And if he can do it up to 10,000, I think we could certainly do it up to a thousand for sure. You know, cause if you think about what are you going to get 10 a day, 20 a day, like, in the early days, it's hard to get more than that many unless it's from a big spike from one thing. So like look up people's, uh, look at people's sites, pay attention to that. Uh, the first interaction that I ever had with Sean McCabe, who we've mentioned a few times, seanwest.com, he had a newsletter. Turns out he was on my list and I didn't know that, but I came across all his lettering work and I signed up to his newsletter and he was using MailChimp at the time. And, uh, MailChimp had like little avatars for the five most recent people who signed up. And he logged into MailChimp and saw mine and was like, 
Cause he had, turns out had followed a lot of my stuff that I'd put out and based some of his packaging and positioning on that. And so then he wrote me an email and was like, Hey, I just let you join my newsletter. Like we'd love to connect. And I think you can bring that level of enthusiasm. You know, he did it cause he recognized my name. Right. But you can bring that level of enthusiasm to anyone, right? They join the newsletter. You like, look up who they are, pay attention to them, send them in a welcome email and build a relationship. If you can do a video, that's just even better. And I think there's a tool uh, called Bonjoro that uh, works really well for that. makes it easy to spin up a list of say like 15 or 20 um, people. And you could just walk through it, record on your phone. We've done that a few times for craft and commerce where we've sent personalized welcome videos to every attendee at craft and commerce. You know, they're coming to Boise for the first time, you know, they pop up and just say like, Hey, you know, it's Nathan from ConvertKit, Barrett from ConvertKit. So excited to have you come, you know, join us in Boise. I remember last time we did it, we were like wandering around just in downtown Boise outside of a coffee shop, like sending off, you know, 20 or 25 of these. And it's just, it's just good to connect with other humans like that and make them feel seen. Agreed. I don't have anything to add there. I think that was a great answer. Um, next question is from Emily. Uh, what are things you should look for when hiring a professional coach? Lots of thought on this. Um, I have been a coach full time. Uh, I am skeptical of coaches in general as a default. Um, I think that's for good reason. I think a lot of people have been coaches in some form or another and not always produce great results for their clients and sometimes irresponsibly position themselves as qualified to provide advice. So I like the question because it assumes a premise of you should be considerate when looking for a coach. Um, and I'd also add to just round it out, you currently pay a significant amount of money each month for a coach. That is true. We both do. We, so, um, to, just for transparency's sake, we pay $13,000 a month for every executive in our company to get very high quality coaching from an organization we know, like, and trust. They focus on, on startup founders and, and executives. Mm-hmm. And so they're not a good fit for, for this audience. Um, but I think we know a lot about the business to be able to answer this question. Um, on my site, barrettbrooks.com, I have a, a article called how to build a sustainable coaching business practice and double your rates in the process. Nice little clickable headline there. Um, the reason I bring that up is cause it doesn't answer your question, but I think if you took a view of that article from your standpoint, as a person looking for a coach, it would help you recognize some of the indicators of a good coaching practice. So the first thing is, what do you want to coach for? I think it's really important that you know why you're hiring a coach. What is your goal? What is your aspiration? What is the feedback you've received from your audience, peers, family, whatever, that tells you you need to grow? Presumably, hiring a coach means you want to grow either in your business or in your life in some way. So what I'm looking for in a coach is one of two things. One, they have direct personal experience achieving or growing in the way that I want to grow. That doesn't make them a good coach in and of themselves, but I think it can be a good indicator that they have the possibility of being a good coach. So that's the first thing. The second option would be they have deep expertise or experience coaching people who have the same aspiration that I do. And so they have a long track record of helping others achieve the thing that I'm trying to achieve. One of those things has to be true. In our case, with the coaches we work with, it's a little bit of a mix of both, but it's primarily that they have a long track record working with people like us who trust them, know them, like them, respect them, and talk about them in terms of the results they've helped them achieve. I think that's really, really important. Um, Someone having a track record that you can verify. 
I let, you know, the trust, but verify thing is good in almost any area of business, especially if you're going to spend good money on a coach. I said for sure. The other thing that I would add is what you're saying about knowing what you want out of it. There's coaching for a lot of different things. Um, things that I'm currently, uh, working on coaching for, or would be on the extreme ends, right? One is on this business side, but it's not like what we get from uh, our coaches, Dan and Andy, isn't heavy on like business advice or strategy. It's really about how we show up as individuals. I'd say if there's a coaching to counseling spectrum, it's like moving a decent amount down that counseling side of things. And that's really good because that helps us, you know, how do we want to show up as leaders? How do, how do we want to interact with our team? Um, how do we want to set the vision and inspire our team to execute towards it? You know, it's a lot of these things that aren't quite as tactical as like, should we implement price A or price B? Should I build a course next or an ebook, right? That's, that's not the level that we're getting into. But then on the other end of the spectrum, something else I'm getting coaching for is I'm working with a running coach right now. Well, not right now, but eight weeks ago, I was working with a running coach because I wanted to uh, learn, you know, proper sprinting technique for playing indoor soccer. You know, it's a lot of short bursts and you have very, you know, if you want to get something done, you have very few steps that you need, that you need to get to speed and all of that to make it happen. And so I realized, okay, if I just work with a professional, then who can really help me with this? I can get those improvements. So I would look at that from your business. Is it, do you want a coach to grow your, your YouTube channel or do you want a coach who's going to help you be a better leader? Do you want, um, you know, another coach that we've worked with a lot is our good friend, Mike Pacione, who's a speaking coach, right? He's going to come in and give very specific advice. And, you know, that's a case where he's got this long track record of all these clients that you would look to. And I think in that case, he's a better coach than like if I went to someone who gives Seth Godin gives amazing talks. I think Mike Bacchion would probably be a better speaking coach than Seth Godin, you know? That, that brings up an important thing for me that is um, understanding whether you want a long-term partner or someone to come alongside you for a project or a specific objective. So a speaking coach, for example, you got a big talk coming up, or maybe you're going to make the transition you made, Emily, from just being a, not, I don't mean just in a negative way, but being a hand illustrator um, versus talking about being a hand illustrator on stage why I said hand illustrator, that's like a weird term, but you know what I mean? And it, as you make that transition, having one talk that you can nail is an incredible asset. And that's a great time to hire a speaking coach because they can set you up to do three years of speaking before you need another talk, as long as you don't get bored of it. Whereas if you want a long-term business partner, you got to look for something a little bit different. You need someone who aligns with your values, has the expertise, can help you achieve business results, all that kind of good stuff. The last point I want to make here is, in my opinion, you're better off learning from people who educate in mass in the way that we are using Q&A Fridays and things like that if you can only afford a little bit of money on a coach. Most coaches I know who are truly good at what they do, they're expensive. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some people who position themselves as expensive as a, a signaling device, but they're not very good at what they do. And so there's some upper bound to this where you have to mm -hmm. still decipher. But for example, last time I coached was a couple years ago, I was charging $500 per hour long session. And that stuff, I mean, I was coming in, you got to be prepared. I got to be prepared. And we're going to knock some stuff out during that hour because my goal was always, I want you to get at least $5,000 of value out of every hour we spend together. And if I'm not delivering, you need to fire me immediately because it's not working for you. You're spending too much money not to get a lot out of that. 
so, you know, I just want to throw that out there too, that if you're spending a hundred dollars an hour, you're probably going to get a hundred dollars an hour worth of value. Whereas if you're more in that, I mean, we spend $1,200 a month on each of our coaches or something like that. Yeah, it's more. Or $2,000 a month yeah. or something like that. And, and, and whatever they're, forget the actual number, but <laughs> they're there to provide a serious amount of value for that cost. Other thing that I would add, this gets me into my little bit of a ranty side potentially. So I'll keep it short. Most everyone, 80% of people, 90% who call themselves coaches should not be coaches. You'll hear us like there are fantastic life coaches out there and I think they're one in a hundred. And so just in general, when someone's offering coaching in that way, just be very skeptical. And especially these programs of like, you know, um, pay $20,000 to join this mastermind and you'll get, you know, this giant mastermind and you'll get assigned a coach. And, and like Emily, like you're saying in the chat, like, no, we're not going to tell you who the coaches are, what their track record is. I would just, I would avoid all of that. Yep. hundred percent. And especially when you don't have that money to spend. Great. Um, we could clearly go on about that today. <laughs> Emily, if you want some specific advice, um, you know, I've got a ton of history here, Barrett at convertkit.com. You can email me. Okay. Um, Nathan, you had mentioned how you quit your job and it took you six months to get back to your usual pace of productive output. Can you talk more about that and motivation while working solo from, I'm going to try and pronounce your name, Irina Zayats. If I got that wrong, I apologize. Sounds pretty good to me, um, but I don't know anything. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So I think that the environment that you're in really shapes you and more than you think. And so I, two examples, um, in high school, my first real job that I got was working at Wendy's. Uh, basically I was about to turn 15, I, th- I think. And I went through the phone book and started calling places and finding out what's the earliest, what's the youngest that you'll hire. And it was like 16, 16, 16. And Wendy's was the first one to say 15. So I applied and we had this manager who was the general manager for the store. And he was like a systems operations. Like let's, let's dial all of this in. And I thought it was fantastic. So I was like, uh, I was on board with that. And what he would do at the beginning of every day is he would pick some other Wendy's location in Boise. He would call up the manager and say, Hey, it's 10 30 right now. The lunch rush is going to start in about 45 minutes. Um, what was your drive through your average time from when a car enters the drive through to when they leave for yesterday? And they'd say, and you go, cool. Not only are we going to beat that today, but we're going to beat whatever time you post for today. And so we're challenging you to that. And he, that was just his idea of a good time. And so what that resulted in was him curating the group of people that worked on the drive-thru so that it would just be dialed in. You know, you had your best sandwich maker, your best person on the headset, everything to get the fastest possible times. And my role, in case you're wondering, was working the cash register. Apparently money is just how, where I've always been. Um, but what that meant is that I learned to work very, very quickly and nail systems. And I took that into web design when I was doing freelance work of really working as quickly as possible. And, and charging per project so that I didn't spend a bunch of time sitting around. So that was one environment and how I carried it forward. But then when I spent a bunch of time working at a big software company, it was a totally different environment. The pace totally changed. And I lost that, that I learned. And so what I realized when I came out of it, was I was, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to snap back into who I was before. And I was really surprised to find out that that's not the case. I didn't snap back into who I was before. I had to relearn that. You know, it'd be like if you worked out every day for a year and then you go three years without working out and you're like, why can't I lift the same weights? Uh, and so you realize that it's a skill that 
to learn and develop and to get back into it. And I think it took me a couple of years. You know, as I look at this question, um, it also touches on like that motivation because it can be really discouraging to realize, oh, I don't have the capabilities that I used to. And I think that's why like a lot of people, maybe if they were coming back from an injury in sports, they might not actually ever get back into sports because they can't achieve that same level. And so I think you have to just set the bar lower and realize, okay, I'm not competing with my old self from two years ago or whenever. I'm competing with myself from yesterday. And I'm just going to try to beat that and go up from there. Yeah. What would you add, Barrett? I think you nailed it. Um, I had the same transition I needed to make when I went from Fizzle, my last company, where we were a little more low key, you know, get a little bit of work done, go enjoy your life to convert kit where we still have a good balance, but we definitely are trying to move fast. Mm -hmm. It took me one interesting thing, for example, was that I, I had a sore throat for like a year because we had so few calls where I had to speak. It was like once a week we recorded a podcast and then I came here and we had meetings every day right. and it was, you know, I was on a microphone and just little things like that are interesting that you notice. Hmm after they change, but before I had no right. idea, you know? And so I really had to ramp up as well. And, and I, I think you're spot on. Uh, James Clear talks about getting 1% better every day and the compounding effects of that. And so really what you're looking for is just a layering of improved results over time. Um, the way I would start is getting one meaningful piece of work done every day. Mm -hmm. Forget your Twitter feed, forget um, TikTok, forget your email inbox, all that stuff, set it aside. One thing every day, you must get one building block created every day for your business. And even starting there, I think will be hard sometimes, but it will make you make significant progress. If you think about a blog post com completed or a YouTube video completed each day, that's a lot of stuff over the course of a year. And so what you're trying to do is set yourself a pace that can be maintained and then that you can build on from there. Yep. That's good. Okay. Nate's question here. Would you publish the mini book? This is what we talked about a few episodes ago in the same form as a big book, or would you put out a mini book as an ebook first and, and go from there? Um, Barry, I'm trying to remember which episode, like what was the context? So this was also the business model episode. We talked about getting to a minimum viable product as fast as possible. Yes. And if you're going to write a long form book, eventually start with writing almost the thesis of the book and selling it at a lower price to see if the uh, selling proposition of the thing is valuable enough to invest that longer period of time in it. Yeah. So what I would do is I'd go for the same format. Um, I would design a nice PDF. Um, but like I, I would buy a template is what I would do is I would go find an ebook template to make a PDF for whatever tool that you're using. We have conveniently on the ConvertKit website, free ebook templates, which I'll post in the chat. Let's look at that. Look at us creating resources. And by us, I mean our team <laughs> creating these resources. But yeah, I would use one of those templates. I would knock it out. The format doesn't matter so much. The content is really what matters. And so as you go from there, like really emphasize getting the great content. And then later, right, when we're putting out the full book, then I would spend a bit of money. I would invest in it to hire a designer. Well, we referenced Chris Gillibo earlier. I think something that he did really well is he had this designer that he worked with, just a, just a freelance designer, you know, no one incredibly special, um, but who designed all of his eBooks and like added that level of quality at a time when everyone was writing something, going into Word and going print to PDF. Chris Gillibo was saying was writing the Word doc and then sending it to a designer and, and paying I don't know five hundred dollars or something for it to be laid out beautifully and have some little illustrations um, in there because it was a relatively short thing. And, and so it just 
it had a level of quality beyond, beyond everything else. So don't let that stop you in getting the thing out quickly. But as soon as you can, keep coming back and iterating and adding that quality. Yep. And if you don't want to do that, my recommendation would be to make it available in Kindle format because Kindles yeah. only really read text anyways. They don't do imagery all that well. I guess the more, the newer ones sometimes do, but that's a way around it. If you're really just a writer, just putting it out in a format that's focused on the writing can be a really great option as well. Yep. That's good. Um, okay. We have questions coming in, in the chat. Let's see. Uh, Christian's asking as a rapidly growing business, when is the right time to transition from scratching your own itch to serving the current and future needs of your market and customers? Yeah, this is a good one, Christian. Uh, number one, congratulations. If you're in this position, uh, it's a really good sign that your business is, is healthy and taking mm -hmm. off pretty rapidly. You're going to get removed from the reality that your customers live in every day. And, uh, I think that you can use your history. If you, if you, if you were kind of scratching your own itch to begin with, you're always going to be able to use that intuition yep. on what's true. But the further you get away from being in their shoes every day, the less you can trust that intuition or that personal scratch your own itch feeling. So Nathan, you and I have talked about this, um, like, yes, we were both creators. <laughs> yes, we use our tool for our own sites at times, but like we're talking about running a $25 million a year company now. Without a doubt, that makes us less in context of our customers every day. Right. We're not having to hustle for the next contract. We're not having to hustle to get that ebook out to, to pay our bills this month. It's a completely different mindset. And so even with this show, we're relying on what we're seeing in our customers mm -hmm. and we're relying on our past as a creator. And so it's really important for us to recognize research really matters at this point in our business. And so that would be the tool that I would use if I'm you is I'd go out and I would use customer research as the secret weapon to stay in touch with what the real people in your audience want, need, hope for, dream about. And I would just never stop. I'd make a habit of it. Every month I'd be having five or 10 conversations with my audience members, either in a group setting or an individual setting to just never lose touch. Cause the moment you lose touch, people see it. They know it right when it happens. Yeah. And if you create a trend of losing touch or showing that you've lost touch, they'll, they'll leave you behind. Um, so I think just staying in touch through customer research is a really valuable way to go about it. Yeah. I think what you nailed there is first this awareness that like, it's kind of the, what got me here won't get me there of like, yes, I have this head start because I'm creating it for myself. And, and, and then you realize, okay, but it's, it's growing beyond that. And that second thing is just asking for feedback and creating systems to create it. So two things, one, a set number of calls, um, that you're going to do calls or, or in-person meetings are even better once we get to the point where we can do those again, say, I'm going to do five a month, one a week, something like that. So you're, you're making that happen consistently. And the second thing is this is something that I learned from Ryan Delk when he was running growth at Gumroad, we'd be hanging out at a conference together and someone would come up to him and say, Oh, Ryan, I love Gumroad. I just used it to sell $10,000 with this product. That's fantastic. Most people would say, wow, awesome. Thank you. I love fans, you know, or, or whatever. Ryan would say, oh, that's so great to hear. What can we do better? How could we help your business more? What should we build into the product? He asked some version of that question and he would turn every one of these compliments into a product feedback session. People would be like, oh, I don't know. I think you guys do everything. It's pretty good. You know, actually, here's this thing. And every time he'd get great feedback and I watched him do it at least a dozen times over the years. And I adopted it myself because it's so good. And so- you know, I've been thinking about last summer when we were at the World Domination Summit, 
standing out before the session started. You were standing there and I had that. People were like, oh, Nathan, you're Nathan from ConvertKit. And they were talking about how they love the product. And I asked that question, what to do better? And they thought about it. And then, then they just got rolling. You know, they're like, oh, and then this. And actually there's this little thing that when I come in on this page, it's really irritating. And it was so, a bunch of them were really easy to fix and we were able to do that. Um, and so I just pulled out my phone and took notes. Um, so first, congratulations on reaching that stage or, or approaching it. And then second, like you're, you've already got that level of awareness that it's shown by the fact that you're asking the question. Yep, love it. Okay, last question of the day. Man, this was an awesome episode, by the way, y'all. I, I just love getting the interaction that y'all give us on these Q&A Fridays. So for sure, um, thank you. I want to say that like meaningfully thank you for asking great questions. Um, last question is from Mark Andre Giru, I would guess is how you say his last name. Um, can you talk about the trade-offs and or when should creators start a new email list versus growing a single large one? Should new but still related product launches and landing pages start from scratch with a new list? This is, there's no right answer. So I want to start yeah. with that. There's no right answer here. Um, what I love about the way we've built our product to toot our own horn for a minute is that we never charge you for the same person having multiple tags or being on what would traditionally be considered multiple lists within one account. I think we've got a lot of functionality that allows you to take whatever approach that you want. Mm -hmm. So if here's how I think about it, if you've got a different website for a new business, I would consider starting a new list. So if I've got barrettbrooks.com and then I'm going to go start a men's fashion business over here, I'm going to have two different accounts for that. I think I'm not going to have a tag for fashion interest and a tag for all my other stuff over here uh, on my barrettbrooks.com site. But if I'm going to release a product for um, first time people managers and career searchers and um, executives of a startup and their different products for each one, those are going to be tags within <laughs> one account. So I would think of it as if you're launching new products under one umbrella, same account. If you're launching a completely different business or different website, I would start a new account. Yep. That totally makes sense. Um, I would try in probably nine times out of 10, there's always exceptions, but in most every time to try to bring them back together in some way so that yes, I'm doing this other thing. It's for a different audience, but I'm still Nathan Berry. And if you want more of my stuff, check it out over here. Or like some of those things where I don't try to run these completely siloed. And that, that's just because I'm always going to put my personal story, my background, my experience into whatever that I'm teaching. You know, even when, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to do this, but if we're going to start a site about building tiny houses, right. And tell that whole story, I could do it on a dedicated site. And that'd be way better than having a site that's like, how to scale a SaaS company, how to build a tiny, you know, like bouncing all over the place. People be like, what is this even about? So if I did something just on tiny houses, you know, I could build a, an audience and a list for it there, but I would still try to find as many ways to tie it back together as possible. Love that. Um, okay. One last one. We'll sneak this one in. Miles asked, I want, I want to help. Or he said, you guys are super focused on creators and I love that. Do you think most of your customers already self-identify as a creator before finding you? Um, I want to help more creators and help them create more awesome stuff, but I wonder if they see themselves as creators. Um, okay. Quick thoughts on this, uh, Miles. Yes and no. I think creator is a term that is growing in traction. It's something yeah. that is being popularized by ConvertKit, by YouTube, by Patreon, by Adidas, uh, with their calling all creators campaign. So it's a way to categorize this group of independent people. We, we define a creator as anyone who makes original work to teach, inspire, or entertain a dedicated audience of fans. So original work 
teach, inspire, or entertain. And then that last piece, a group of dedicated fans. So what we're trying to do is to define it, to put it out there in the world and say, if you do this thing, you are a creator, you belong here with us. Um, I think we're not quite there yet. Uh, it's gaining in popularity. And I think this is a wave we are all riding together. Mm -hmm. So if you're focusing on this, I think it's a really good time to be using the term creator because we're at the beginning still and more and more people are adopting that identity. But I think everyone, every creator has a primary identity that is not named creator. It's blogger, YouTuber, musician, chef, athlete, mm -hmm. whatever. That is how people think of themselves primarily. And then the bigger categorization, it's almost like how you name species. You know, there's like a family and a genus. It's the same kind of yeah. thing. What type of creator are you? I'm a musician and that rolls up into creator. So I think it can work. I think we're at the beginning and I think it's a good time to be in that market. Fantastic. Well, uh, we got to call it there. Otherwise we would spend all day answering questions. And I've actually spent the last two hours on YouTube now <laughs> at this point in one form or another. So thanks for hanging out, everyone. I will say uh, we did finally get a website up for this show. It's at futurebelongstocreators.com. It's basically just linking off to where we live stream, iTunes, Spotify, or RSS feed, all of that. Um, but check it out there. Thanks for hanging out. We'll be back on Monday. See you later. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. To start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time.